Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Canadian Christopher DeWolf moved to Hong Kong nine years ago and he often writes for the South China Morning Post about the city's urban landscape. His new book is part of a celebration of the street and rooftop life of urban Hong Kong and partly a critique of how the government is failing its residents and pedestrians. He and I wander along Boundary Street to talk about borrowed spaces, life between the cracks of modern Hong Kong. Well, we're walking down Boundary Street, which is the boundary between Mong Kok and Sam Shui Po, the historic boundary between Hong Kong and China before 1898. And I really like this street because it has a low-key neighborhood atmosphere. It's busy, but not too busy. And it also, the space is interesting because it's broad, it's not too cluttered, you don't have too many fences like on, on many streets. There's just a really nice kind of neighborhood, local atmosphere here. And we've just had some really nice coffee. Yeah, we were having coffee at Bound, which is a new business that opened less than a year ago on Boundary Street. And it's sort of like the street itself. It's very chilled out, very casual. So around this area, do you think that a lot of the mom and pop shops are still being preserved? Yeah, luckily around here you don't have as much pressure in terms of rents, so you still have a lot of old businesses. I mean, we're walking past this butcher shop that's been around for a long time. You can always tell when a business is old because they have the hand-cut characters on the signs as opposed to some sort of vinyl-printed cheap sign that is going to disappear. So you know they've been around because they've invested in their, their signage. We're walking down Poplar Street right now, which is sort of the neighborhood wet market or the street market but the problem is bit by bit the stalls are disappearing because the government buys back the licenses removes the market stall and there's nothing left and usually just the space is occupied by cars that are just parked there whereas you used to have more of a street market so there's still some hawker stalls but bit by bit every year they're disappearing yeah so we've got fish veg but you're saying that this crossroads used to be all market Yeah, yeah. Definitely when I first moved around here uh, nine years ago, there were a lot more market stalls, you know, the classic green market stalls. And I don't know how many have disappeared, but it's noticeable now that they're gone. Now, you spend a lot of your time on the streets. I've known you through your articles for the South China Morning Post, among others. Your topics, uh, how would you describe it? Urbanism, architecture, just walking the streets of Hong Kong? Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Uh, Basically just city life, trying to understand what makes Hong Kong tick, how the city works. And so a lot of that is kind of walking around neighborhoods, just looking at things, observing, and seeing how how things change and just getting a feel for the atmosphere. So what I'm really interested in is the the small-scale grassroots life in each neighborhood. So the neighborhood businesses, how people use the neighborhood. Standing on the street here on Poplar Street, you can look around and you have these market stalls with uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, these styrofoam containers that are piled up from deliveries. Somebody's left their bicycle there. There's another bicycle. You just have a lot of activity and a lot of stuff in the streets. And that's what gives Hong Kong its texture. You know, it's these awnings that you see. The way people make the streets and the buildings livable and, and useful. Over there, we've got the Wingley Metal Co. And for me, I love shops like that. It's full of Brillo pads, wicker this and that, plus string. I like looking at it as just a hoarder observer. It's kind of like an Aladdin's cave of uh, mass-produced goods. You go in and they're all hanging from hooks in the ceiling and it's just amazing. I mean, there's more and more businesses in Hong Kong that are sterile feeling, that are chain stores, they don't have any connection to the community and no real investment in their neighborhood. And so you can really feel it. They might just disappear one day and nobody really really notice. Whereas uh, when these businesses disappear, people feel it and it, it creates a big hole in the neighborhood. 
Now, Christopher, you've lived, as you say, uh, in Hong Kong for the past nine years. You're a big observer on Hong Kong. You've also taken thousands of photographs of urban life. Um, and your book is one of seven for the Penguin Handover series. Borrowed Spaces, can you tell me what was at the center of that? So Borrowed Spaces is about how ordinary citizens in Hong Kong have built the city from the ground up. So they take these uh, spaces that uh, by themselves are actually quite inhuman, quite hostile. You basically have ugly concrete buildings, no trees or anything like that. Um, and then they, they make them human. Uh, so they, they put things like potted plants in the streets, they open market stalls, they install awnings to give people shade and, and shelter from the rain. And so basically it's all these little interventions that ordinary people do that make Hong Kong both lively and interesting, but also uh, livable. At the same time, you have this very bureaucratic government that doesn't really understand how these small-scale interventions work, and they have a very top-down way of managing the city that really benefits big businesses and sort of these other forces that make the city more homogenous and, and more corporate and more sterile. So when you were writing Borrowed Spaces, were there any particular areas of Hong Kong and Kowloon that you had in mind? A lot of it was based on my own neighborhood, just seeing how it works and how people interact and how businesses kind of set up in the, in the neighborhood. This was a real inspiration, just walking around, you know, the few blocks around my apartment. But of course, there's many other parts of the city, uh, some of the, the historic street markets, you know, Graham Street, for instance, and seeing the whole redevelopment controversy and going into, into some in-between areas, uh, like this hillside a few blocks from where we're standing, which is one of many ambiguous areas in Hong Kong that have been just kind of left left over. Uh, it's never been developed. It's this green hillside. There is a defunct reservoir on the top of it, which is why it wasn't developed. And people have turned that into this informal recreation space. So they've built exercise equipment using secondhand materials. They've even built steps up the, the slope uh, with bamboo hand railings. So you end up with these spaces that are maybe on the surface a little messy, a little discordant, but they actually work really well, they have a nice feeling, they respond to the needs of people, and that's what sort of inspired the book. Now, within the book, you also use at least one expert on urbanism. The jumping off point for the book was Jane Jacobs, and she was an urbanist who wrote about New York in the early 1960s, and a lot of her work was just based on uh, observations of the city and how it, how it worked. She argued for things like a diversity of buildings, you know, old buildings, new buildings, cheap buildings, expensive buildings, having uh, pedestrian-friendly streets as opposed to car-oriented streets, things that in a lot of cities we now take for granted, but in Hong Kong those lessons haven't really been absorbed by the people in charge. So that was a big inspiration for the book, and uh, I wanted to take some of the lessons from her work and apply them to Hong Kong and, and see how we could look at Hong Kong through that kind of filter of, of just being a person on the street observing and understanding the, all the little nuances of, of how the city works. Now, in many ways, Borrowed Spaces is an easy read in the sense that it's a fairly short book at about 20,000 words, and some of it's quite inspiring, some of it is quite depressing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've gotten feedback that it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Um, actually, a friend of mine read the book and said it creates a feeling of doom and delight that we're all familiar with in Hong Kong. I think that really is the experience of, of living here, is being delighted by just sort of the amazing life that you see around you, uh, this vibrancy on the streets, but uh, despairing from the fact that a lot of it seems to be disappearing. And occasionally you'll, uh, you know, go to your favorite street and all the businesses have closed and the next year 
they're torn down for some new high-rise that doesn't even have any shops on the ground floor. I, I think the book does manage to capture the experience of, of being in Hong Kong, caring about the city, and, and just being torn between uh, optimism and pessimism. What do you think about the lack of pedestrianisation? That, I think, is one of Hong Kong's greatest failures uh, at the moment, is the absolute contempt with which pedestrians are treated by the people in charge. You basically have a city where 80% of people are getting around by public transport or foot, and yet uh, 80% of the streets are given over to, to vehicles. So you have narrow footpaths, you have all these railings and fences that are constantly blocking your way. The sidewalks are overcrowded and you have a lot of pollution that's trapped in the streets because you have all these diesel vehicles and private cars causing congestion. And there's just an absolute lack of planning in a holistic way, thinking about how do we make the streets more pleasant? How do we make them more comfortable for people? Nobody's asking themselves how we can actually reduce the number of vehicles in the streets. It's all about accommodating more and more traffic. And just the ordinary person walking down the street is the one who bears the brunt of that. Aside from describing the status quo, I mean, if you were, say, in this area that's obviously beloved by you, it's where you live, if you were allowed to be the town planner for this area, what would you institute and what would you preserve? So people always say Hong Kong doesn't have space, but in this neighborhood, for instance, the streets are quite wide, wide enough that on a lot of them, you'll have two rows of parked cars along the edges and then another row or two of uh, illegally double parked cars. I mean, that's absurd. So I would have wider sidewalks. I would try to have more greenery, you know, street trees, basically more space for pedestrians and especially what's lacking is spaces to linger so what other cities have done is they've built these bulb outs at the corners they've built they're called bulb outs and they're basically these expanded sidewalks at each street corner that slow down traffic that's that's turning the corner but also give you space to maybe plant a tree or have some benches benches in hong kong yeah who could imagine that and, and so that's what's needed in a neighborhood like this. And in a busy neighborhood like, say, Mong Kok or Causeway Bay, we need more pedestrian streets. I mean, there's already some, but in the case of Mong Kok, we had Saing Choi Street, which was a part-time pedestrian street that has actually been rolled back. It's now pedestrian only uh, for a very short period on the weekends, whereas it used to be every evening. And the reason it was rolled back is because there were some noise complaints due to street performers, but that's a question of management. So that, that's the failure of various government departments to actually manage street performers or manage noise. And instead they gave up. And now you walk down Saing Choi Street and it's filled with cars. Uh, people are overflowing from the sidewalks and it's just a mess. So uh, we need more pedestrian precincts, basically areas where people can just walk and feel comfortable as opposed to feeling uh, bothered and, and stressed. Yes, I'm sure it would do the mental health of people living in Hong Kong uh, a lot of good if also just the noise reduction. And then what would you suggest then if you have pedestrianised areas that you then have certain times of the day when delivery trucks can come in and, and then obviously the emergency vehicles can come in? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's many, many examples of this around the world. Many other cities have managed to pedestrianise neighbourhoods while still allowing access to delivery vehicles or emergency vehicles. You can either do that through part-time pedestrianisation. We already have some examples of that in Hong Kong. Or you can do it by having uh, special bollards, for instance, that uh, are retractable. So when you need to have an emergency vehicle, they can just drive straight in. But you're, you're preventing other vehicles from entering. You know, there's established delivery times and so on. It's really a question of management and sitting down and trying to think of how a neighborhood works and how best to manage that. And right now, nobody is really doing that. The planning process in Hong Kong is pretty weak. Uh, it doesn't actually plan the city beyond uh, the broadest of strokes. And you don't really have anybody sitting down 
and coordinating with all these different government departments how best to treat a, a specific street or a neighborhood and thinking about it in a kind of a holistic way. One of the more famous aspects of Hong Kong in past times, of course, has been its mass load of neon signs. I mean, that's central to tourism, central to films, um, but they're gradually disappearing. It's astonishing how quickly the neon signs are disappearing. Even 10 years ago, there were so many neon signs, and just in the past maybe five or six years, almost all of them have disappeared. And that's not even an exaggeration to say. All of them? Uh, almost all of them. I mean, there's very few neon signs left if you actually look around. You still have some, but streets that used to be filled with neon, uh, now often the only neon sign you'll see is, say, a, a pawn shop. Everything else has been taken down. And, and the reason they've been taken down is, is basically because the government stepped up enforcement of signs that violate building codes. And a lot of these signs were, were put up 20, 30, 40 years ago when either building codes were less strict or they, they, they were approved back then, but things have changed and now the government thinks they're unsafe. But surely there must have been a government certificate that said you are permitted to erect a neon sign here. In some cases, that may well have been the case, but uh, the government has no archives law. A lot of records have been destroyed over the years, so uh, in many cases it's just very unclear as to whether any of these signs had permission or not. And the problem is that there's not really a good mechanism for people to keep their signs without paying a ton of money, and, and for a lot of businesses it's just not worth it. And nobody is, is thinking of how to save the neon signs. They're basically just thinking of how to get rid of them. The government is kind of like a, you know, a machine that, that just works and works and works until you give it instructions otherwise. And somebody has programmed in remove all non-conforming signs, and so that's what it's going to do. Where are they going? In the landfill? Yeah. M Plus Museum has been trying to collect some neon signs, but apparently they've actually had difficulty because, first of all, they need to know that a sign is about to disappear so they can contact the owner and try to have the owner uh, donate it or uh, have M Plus purchase it. But in many cases, the, the signs just vanish very quickly and then they end up in a landfill. And in other cases, uh, strangely enough, some business owners are very reluctant to actually sell their, their old sign. And so even M Plus can't acquire them when it's trying to build up this uh, collection of, of old neon. I'm talking with Christopher oh. DeWolf, the author of Borrowed Spaces. So this is all about how up-top planning from the government uh, might be sanitising Hong Kong. Definitely making it less interesting. Yes, um, but Hong Kong people are fighting back. There's been a growth of community groups, concerned citizens. I think there's a, just a lot more awareness among people in Hong Kong of what makes the city special, and they're concerned about how it's changing. So you do see some of these neighborhood concern groups who are actively resisting some of the changes, proposing alternatives that might be a bit more sustainable. So that's been a, a real positive in the past several years, is people are a lot more engaged. We're standing in Key Lung Street. I think it's about to rain. The uh, skies are darkening. You can hear a bit of trolley sound outside, deliveries going on, people stacking up pallets. And across the way, the tapping sound is, in fact, it looks like a bike repair shop. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting businesses around here. Um, I'll just describe the, the bicycle repair shop. Basically, it's a, a tiny closet, uh, just absolutely packed with uh, spare parts. I actually see not just bicycle frames, but also fan blades hanging from the ceiling and just an amazing assortment of products. And, and this is an example of the kind of neighborhood independent business that is becoming unfortunately less common around Hong Kong as rents go up, as old buildings are knocked down and, and replaced by much more expensive properties. But these types of businesses, they kind of bind a community together because you know the owner, it's a familiar site. There's always somebody on the street who's, you know, in this case, repairing a bicycle, but as 
Jane Jacobs described, those are eyes on the street, and that's what gives the city its vitality uh, and makes it feel like a, a welcoming place. Now, the bicycle repair shop is next to uh, an Indonesian foodstuffs and provision shop, and it's actually on the ground floor of an eight-storey building, so a lot of these are quite low-rise. Yeah, by Hong Kong standards, they are low-rise buildings, and I don't think there's anything wrong with high-rises necessarily, but the problem now is that a lot of these low-rise buildings are, are being redeveloped and replaced by something whose scale is much bigger, much more alienating to the pedestrian on the street. Often, these little shops you would see on the street would be replaced by one big expensive retail space and maybe a car park entrance or some sort of blank wall with uh, utility um, cabinets and that would just kill the street entirely so instead of having you know five or six small businesses you would have maybe one and that's really harming the city and, and they, there's no controls on that there's no planning controls no design controls uh, it's just not a part of the system in Hong Kong. How could that be changed? Well, I think it would be good to reform Hong Kong's planning system, first of all, so that you do have more control, not over what gets built, but how it's built and how it looks. And uh, you start having people look critically at how a building relates to the street, whether it's the right fit for the neighborhood. Some might object to that because it goes against the free market principles that Hong Kong was supposedly built on. But Hong Kong is, in many other cases, a city where the government has a strong hand in things. And I don't see why planning should be any different. I'm walking around with Christopher just off Boundary Street. So there was that historic divide between Hong Kong and China from past times. And uh, as you say, it's a sort of nice wider streets here. You live in a district close by. So do you have plenty of Dai Pai Dongs that you can go to? Well, luckily, uh, just a few minutes walk from here in Sam Shui Po, there's uh, the city's biggest collection of Dai Pai Dongs that are remaining. However, unlike the ones in Central on Stanley Street, which were renovated a few years ago, these ones are still operating the way they always have, and there's actually a lot of opposition from the local district council, from neighbors, because of the noise they make, because of the, the cooking fumes. And so they're actually most at risk of disappearing. So I hope there will still be Dai Dongs left uh, in the next 10 years. What do you like eating there? I think my favorite dish would probably be the clams stir-fried in black bean sauce. That's always a favorite. Um, there's something about eating out on the street that just makes it taste different. Yeah. I mean, it's nice, you know, imagine it's like an October evening, you know, you've had a long, hot summer, and suddenly it's a bit breezier, you can sit on the street. It's just a wonderful experience, and, and, you, and you don't feel closed in. You're not sitting in one of these very small spaces that most Hong Kong restaurants have. You're sitting in the street, you can look around at the buildings, people are passing by. It just feels more neighborly, more inviting. Well, because, I mean, so many flats here, I mean, the vast majority of the Hong Kong population live in very small flats, then you're moving on to subdivided flats. So a lot of the business, a lot of the socialising does come down onto the street. And that's actually a problem that's going to get worse. As living spaces get smaller, public spaces are also becoming more restrictive. So people are, are, are being forced to live in these uh, ever tinier apartments, but they don't even have an outlet where they can go to, to unwind. They can't go to the park because it's, it's uncomfortable and there's a lot of rules. You can't play music there. You can't bring your dog. We need a balance. If we're going to have small living spaces, we need high-quality public spaces where people can feel comfortable and where they can unwind and relax and talk to neighbours. What I also feel, though, is that a lot of it always has to be organised here. You're not allowed to play football. A busker needs a licence and can stand here. But, I mean, a lot of what we're witnessing around us right now is very organic. And that's, I think, the key is to... Uh, is to 
maybe not encourage, but definitely have a framework for tolerating organic activity and, and allowing it to just run its course, uh, you have to have a certain amount of um, give and take. And as streets become more restrictive, they become more lifeless. What are we standing right, right next to? Uh, this is an old printing shop. Uh, it's playing the radio. You have a, a huge old, uh, I guess that's a printer, and stacks of paper in the background. There's uh, little shrines outside the shop entrance, uh, a nice, really nice hand-painted sign. It's one of those old 60s buildings that has an overhang over the sidewalk, so you can uh, be protected from the rain, and, and the shop owners have actually installed uh, ceiling fans, uh, which, actually, which makes it a very pleasant place to stand. It's cracking. Wonderful. You've got these great big balls of plastic string, three fans at least hanging from the ceiling. At the back of the shop, you've also got a shrine with three red bulbs in there. This is real vintage Hong Kong. Mm, it definitely is. And you also have one of those um, accordion-style shutters with the name of the shop punched into it. And these are the kind of things that give the city its texture and make it an interesting place to walk around. What other gems do you think are around in this area that you've come across well, nearby you have the old uh, wholesale fabric and materials district, which unfortunately is on the decline because now it's cheaper for businesses just to go to the mainland and source things directly from factories. But what's interesting is as these businesses are shuttered, the neighborhood is gentrifying, but in a way that is kind of keeping with its old character. You have some young people opening up uh, leatherware shops, for instance, or there's a, a so-called makerspace that just opened nearby where people can go and, and produce things. And I think that's interesting to see a neighborhood change, but not lose its character. And around here, there's a lot of other hidden gems as well. You have some of the city's best Dai Bai Dongs. You have some really interesting street markets around Sam Shui Po MTR station. And along Pei Ho Street, you actually have one of the city's illegal night markets. So after the sun sets and a lot of the other stalls close for the day, you have uh, some, some more informal hawkers that come out selling secondhand goods. You have... Uh, for instance, one guy who stands at a corner selling really nice bicycles. Uh, and and that's actually become a gathering place for people who are interested in bicycles. You always see them standing around talking about the bikes. This is a, a neighborhood that still lives in the streets, you know, like what you used to see many years ago in Hong Kong, but it's becoming increasingly, increasingly rare. Are you hopeful that it will be around for a few more years? Oh, I really hope so. I really hope Sam Shui Po is, is not homogenized to the extent where it loses its street life. With borrowed spaces, are you hoping that a government planner will pick it up? Oh, yeah. I, I definitely hope that somebody in the government uh, who has some sway over things reads the book and, and realizes how important these small-scale things are to Hong Kong, both to its economy and also its, its culture, uh, its identity, because it's these small things that make Hong Kong what it is. Have you ever tried one of the street barbers? No, I, I, I tend to go to uh, fancier salons to get my hair cut. So I, I've never actually gone to barbers in my life. <laughs> but I, I really, uh, I find it interesting, all the street barbers. You see them in back alleyways, cutting people's hair for very little money. And that's, that's important, you know, to have these types of affordable businesses. And it also just makes it, I mean, it, it's great to walk, walk by and be able to peek in into somebody's life, uh, you know, to look at their little space in the alleyway and when you're walking around Hong Kong and you pass those things, it feels like you're dipping in and out of different worlds. And also, I think what, what needs to be stated here in the middle of Sham Shui Po, next to Boundary Street, is that when you've got... The biggest wealth gap in the world is Hong Kong. Um, so when you have 
these quirky secondhand markets this isn't we're not talking the paris flea market where you can go and you know i mean i like it for that reason sure but you're also you've got that because there's people who are living on about four thousand dollars a month that's right i mean uh a lot of these market stalls a lot of these uh little informal businesses are crucial to people who who are living uh, on a very small income and they can't afford to to shop at park and shop even or uh let alone some of the um the more upmarket grocery stores that are pro- proliferating around town uh so it, it's not just a question of lifestyle it's not just uh scenic to have these businesses i mean it's important in a in in the sense of uh, you know providing access to low-income people to to be able to live and you need you need balance in a city you need diversity and you need the city to to cater to people of all different backgrounds and um of all different incomes yeah i mean i certainly as i think also what the secondhand market also provides is a little bit of uh, well-needed recycling in hong kong too that's right you do see a lot of um ingenious use of secondhand materials you know hong kong has a reputation for for being very wasteful and not recycling but actually there's a lot of creativity in reusing things you'll see uh, market stalls that have done uh ingenious things to be able to build rain shelters for instance the old umbrellas are being reused you have like old shipping crates that are given a new life and and so when you're looking at these kind of little businesses you're also talking you're also seeing sort of a culture of thrift and, and recycling, which I think is is a good thing. Now, with the stallholders that you were describing earlier, the market stallholders, what, what's happening there that once they give up their license, it's not being renewed? So what's happening is the government is trying to buy back licenses in a lot of street markets in order to thin them out. On a lot of secondary streets, you might have like one or two market stalls. And in those cases, the government will... will offer some money to the, the the license holder uh to try to get them to give give up their license walk away from the business and uh when that happens the stall is shuttered and then removed and why why would the government want to get rid of this i mean this is a community thing this is street market this is providing good food uh often you know food that uh, some i mean rarely these days has come from the new territories but certainly across the border it's fresh produce often I think there's an old-fashioned mentality at play. The reason the the market stalls are disappearing is because back in the 70s, you had this huge influx of street hawkers that came after the refugee waves from from China. The government was looking for a way to manage the situation. And so what they did is they decided to eliminate them, but through a process of attrition. So it would be just not practical to wipe all the hawkers out. Uh, So instead, they, they organized them, they licensed them but they made the licenses non-transferable. So once the license holder dies, it really can't be passed along. You can't sell licenses for instance. And so the theory was that as hawkers grew older and then they died, then their stalls would disappear and eventually you would have a city with no street markets. And that policy has never changed. The government has looked at changing it. There there's been a legislative council panel discussing exactly that. They came up with some recommendations to to liberalize it to allow these uh, stalls to continue because they're, they're, I think people from across the political spectrum realize how important they are but through government inertia nothing really has been done uh, it's, it's just not a priority for the government at the moment. Do you think that a lot of Hong Kong government, you know, they will have gone to band one schools they'll have then moved into the civil service do you think they've really got a clue about what's going on to the street? Do you think they're a little bit embarrassed by Dai Pai Dongs? I think so. I think there's a certain segment of the Hong Kong middle class that is embarrassed by 
uh, a lot of these traditional Hong Kong things. They think they're they're dirty. They think they're unseemly. They grew up at a time when that was sort of the official stance on them that oh, this is old fashioned old fashioned stuff. We'll have to get rid of in order to modernize. They still have this very old notion of, of progress and that mentality is, is I think pervasive in the civil service uh, in the higher ranks in government and so they just don't a lot of them might not understand why people would care about Dai Dongs, why anyone would want to save street markets when you have a supermarket that you can go to uh, they don't understand the importance of it to ordinary people my thanks to Christopher DeWolf, the author of Borrowed Spaces, Life Between the Cracks of Modern Hong Kong. Next week, I head off to an organic vegetable market at the Star Ferry and hear about runner and missionary Eric Little, whose Olympic prowess was featured in the movie Chariots of Fire and who was buried in the Second World War in China. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>